The world claims to want love. Love is advocated and praised in every corner. Romantic love. Songs, novels, movies, television series. They completely exploit the emotional, lustful desire. And they term it genuine love. Questing for, fantasizing about the perfect love is a ultimate human experience that's portrayed. We know this to not be true. Whatever God establishes, Satan will counterfeit. Wherever God establishes true love, Satan will produce counterfeit love. Counterfeit love characterizes what the Bible calls children of the devil. Those who are of the world, it characterizes the lost, the sinner. And true love characterizes God's children, those who are citizens of heaven. In contrast to what is godly, unselfish, forgiving, and graceful about God's love, the world's love is equally just as lustful and self-indulgent. It loves because the object of love is attractive, enjoyable, pleasant, satisfying, appreciative, that they love in return, that they produced the desired feelings in my heart, or are likely to repay it in some way. Worldly love is always based on that other person fulfilling my needs and my desires and my expectation. Worldly love is Purely reciprocal. It gives as little as you expect in return. And speaking of this kind of love, Jesus said in Matthew 5.46, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same. At the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to see a contrast between the actions of the world and the actions of the children of God. And I, I think that this is really the actions between worldly love and godly love. That is the dividing line. It continues on our study of the practical section of Ephesians, which is chapter 4 through 6. And this morning we're going to be reading in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. We're going to look at a few verses at a time and then examine them. In this passage, the Apostle Paul presents the positive truths about godly love, and he contrasts that with the negative truths about what Satan is counterfeiting and all its consequences. This is what it says in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2a. Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the command that's been given us. This is the plea of Paul. We are to be and also to become more imitators of God. It is both a present and continuous reality. We will continue to be imitators of God. This passage in the Greek uses the word mimetes, which is the term from which we get mimic. Mimetes was someone who copied specific characteristics of another person. You and I, by constant perseverance in our discipleship walk, are becoming mimics, imitators, copies. Every day, 
If we are doing what the Bible says and following the lead of the Holy Spirit, we are becoming more like Heavenly Father. As imitators of God, Christians are to imitate God's characteristics. This is the purpose around everything that we do. We are trying to connect people to the power of the Holy Spirit so that they can be closer in behavior, holiness, and love according to what God's personality and character are. That is what defines God's character. That should define who you are in Christ. God's purpose in salvation is to redeem people from sin and then conform them to the image of his Son. That is what it says in Romans 8.29. Those who bear his name must begin to bear his heart and behavior. When Alexander the Great discovered a coward in his army whose name was also Alexander, he told the soldier, renounce your cowardice or renounce your name. J.S. Exel, one of the old scholars of Ephesians, put it even in straighter terms. He said, be like Christ or be not called a Christian. That is the command. That is the, the plea. That is at the beginning of, of Ephesians chapter 5. The second division is what I call the pattern. Ephesians 5, 2, finishing out the verse. You, know, you see, we've been given an excellent resource in our walk of imitating God. The Almighty himself came down in human form and gave us a great pattern by which to live our lives. You know, behavioral scientists have discovered an interesting phenomenon called imprinting. It's in the early development of some animals. At certain critical stages, whatever uh, animal, object, or person the infant animal is exposed to, they imprint on them and they take them to be their parent. If a young goose is imprinted with a dog, the gosling will see the dog as his mother. Paul says that that kind of imprinting should happen in Christian growth. We should be walking so closely with Jesus that he imprints upon us his nature, loving, serving, sacrificing, pleasing to God the Father. Stay close to him through Bible study, prayer, fellowship, and evangelism so that you are always in a position to be transformed into his image. You only start imprinting if you're in proximity. This is how the Ephesians say that we can walk in love. This is what it says at the, in, at the end of verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is our imprint. That is our pattern to follow as Christ loved us. I remember tracing... Um, having the tracing paper as a kid. You can learn form and pattern by tracing. The more carefully you trace, the truer the likeness of the copy is to the original. Now, I think in spiritual things, it's actually God through the Spirit of Christ that does the tracing. He patterns us after His Son. He's the one who's doing the drawing. Our job as the paper is to stop flailing around and messing it up. God is sketching the very nature of Christ into our souls. What do we know about this nature? What is this nature exactly? That love of Christ. That beautiful agape love that cared and cried and sacrificed for us. The love that made Christ put aside the concern for his own welfare, for our spiritual welfare. 
that looked past our lack of merit, our attractiveness, or our willingness to obey or conform. And he took that love and all the way to, to be nailed to a cross. That is what you are being conformed to. That should scare you. Because there is very little of your own opinions and feelings left with that kind of love. It is love despite feeling. It is love despite reciprocation. It is love despite whether that person is friend or enemy. It is love despite the imperfections and the annoyances. I know why you don't chase holiness and discipleship. Because having that kind of love imprinted onto you will strip you of your autonomy in exchange for the will of God, and that makes you sick in your sin nature. You continuously will find an excuse not to be like Jesus Christ because you want control of your own decisions. In verses 3 and 4, Paul then begins to expand upon what it means to be and live outside that pattern of Jesus Christ. He talks about the perversion. The lists of sins are never complete in the scripture, but they do identify what kinds of things were problems for the recipients of those letters. This is Paul's partial list in Ephesians 5 verses 3 through 4. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. The type of love that the world cheers is inevitably immoral and impure. It is always impermanent and exploitative. It is always self-serving and counterfeit. It is always destructive and unsatisfying. It cannot help but be that way because it is inherently focused on the wrong person. Any love that is not focused on God will find itself corrupted, a shadow of the true thing. We would do well if we would spend more time fostering the marriage between Christ and his church. And have that be the central focus of all our human relationships, but we spend too much time fostering the perversion that exists in me. Fostering the perversion that exists between us and the world. I know it's hard. Sin masquerades as beautiful, good, and rewarding. It wouldn't be tempting if it weren't so attractive and promising and easy. But I tell you, if God is not the center of what you are building in your relationships, in this church, spouses will be forsaken and hurt, children neglected, homes destroyed, friends discarded. When your effort is centered on fulfilling your own pleasure, your own lust, your own desire, all in the name of love, people will get hurt. The selfishness we proclaim in our everyday actions of our relationships, it always leads to a form of spiritual and emotional brutality towards other people. We permanently damage people's minds and brains and spirits with our actions.
God has to be first, or everything else is perversion. As he's going through this list, Paul again talks about language. Didn't we just talk about that last week? Here it is again, because I think that Ephesian church struggled with these sins. And I think probably Paul knew that all its other recipients would struggle with their words as well. And God knew that we would really struggle with our words here in the 21st century Council Grove. It says for those who bear the name of Christ, they should never be guilty depending on your translation, of obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. The word here for obscenity does not mean cuss words per se. It means any talk that is degrading and socially inappropriate. It comes from the word disgraceful. And he reminds the church of all the vile things that the world says, the grating, the obscene, the disgraceful, the socially inappropriate. They have no place in the church. The second word that is uh, usually translated as foolish talk is moralagia, which is used only here in the New Testament. It's derived from uh, moros, which means dull or stupid, and it get, it's from the word which we get moron and uh, lego to speak. It means that anything that you say that is stupid talk, speech that is intellectually deficient or ignorance, ignorant of facts, should not be spoken. The ancient Greeks used this word to talk about drunks or people who thought that they were knowledgeable about a subject but weren't. And it should stand as a reminder that saying something that is untrue is a sin, whether or not it, it, you know it's untrue or whether or not you believe it is untrue. If you aren't sure of the facts of something, it would be better not to talk. It goes back to the Old Testament, to Proverbs 29.11. A fool says whatever is on his mind, but a wise one quietly holds it back. Eutropolia is the last word used here by Paul. It means crude or coarse joking. It carries the specific connotation of making something that is innocent into something suggestive or overtly sexual. This is reprimanding the type of person who has to always tell that lowbrow joke. The person who always has to turn something into an innuendo. The, the, the sexual joke, the immoral wit of the world. The NIV tells us there is no place for these things, but the actual wording here says this. These things do not come up to the mark. They don't measure up to the level that Christ has called us to. Instead of these things... Paul says that a believer's mouth should be full of thanksgiving. You know, thanksgiving is an expression of the unselfishness that Paul has been talking about throughout this whole book. The, the selfish person does not give thanks because they think they deserve whatever good they get. And they, they don't give thanks in tough times because they believe themselves more deserving than the situation they are in. Thanksgiving is, is a form of humility and unselfishness. Listen, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are currently. You have received many blessings from God. And thanksgiving should be the dominant note in your speech and in your thought as well. Paul doesn't just tell us what is outside the pattern of Christ, but he also tells us the punishment that waits for those who break that pattern. For those who refuse to have God sketch Jesus into your life. This is what Paul says is waiting for you, uh, reading from verses 5 through 7. You may be sure of this. 
that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is, an, an idolater, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. It's clear from the wording of this that Paul is restating a truth that has already been taught to the Ephesians probably many times when he pastored among them. And no doubt one that others have reinforced in their teaching. Because he says this, you may be sure of this or you may have uh, knowledge of this with certainty. It seems to indicate that this is something they have heard many times or they should know beyond any doubt or confusion. God does not tolerate sin. And the things that he stated, that selfish love, that perverted sin, the uncontrolled tongue and mind, they have no place in the kingdom. They have no place in the family. He says that these people have no inheritance. Habitual immorality have no part of the inheritance. People who practice this kind of impurity, they have no part of the inheritance because they have no part in God's kingdom or in God's family. God's own children will have God's own nature. The unrepentant, sinful person does not have a godly nature. They show it with their actions. They are actually sons of disobedience. They are children of the devil. Children of the world. And people will sit here and deny that truth. They will try to claim something different. But Paul warns us to, to not let them deceive us with empty words. Don't let people tell you something different. Don't partner with them. Don't even partake with them. That's what the word means here. Partner or, or partakers. People will try to deny that truth. But Paul warns us not to listen to them. He warns us in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't be partners or partakers with them. The believers of Asia Minor, the believers of Ephesus, can either become full partners with the saints, or they can become full partners with the sons of disobedience, but not with both. Those two groups are mutually exclusive. Church, I've, I've seen one verse thrown a lot during 2020. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. I keep seeing people lament our nation. I keep seeing people who lament the wickedness of the world. I keep seeing people who are praying for God to heal our land, but the, the, the onerous, the responsibility is placed on the church to do something different than the world, to do something different than your old nature. It is God's people. That's what the verse says. It is God's people, the one called by Christ's name that are supposed to humble themselves, seek God's face, and turn from their wicked ways. Our prayers, I think, need to be less, sorry God for the nation, and more, sorry for my household. Less down with their wicked ways, and more, I am done with my wicked ways. Less heal our land, and, and more heal my brokenness. 
You see, the chronicler was writing the same truth that Paul was. Paul was writing to believers. The chroniclers were, were writing to the, to the Jews. And, and they tell them the same truth that stretches across all times. The world is lost. The world is blind, hardened, rebellious, evil. Whatever word you want to use, Paul used those words last week. But the entire instructions about how to interact with this world is to make sure that those who are wanting the inheritance of God, those who are wanting to take the name of Jesus Christ as their own, that they are not lovers, partakers, or even associates of the world. The impetus, the power on whether the land will be healed or not comes from the church alone and our willingness to follow God. We have a sick land. It is true. What will you do? Are you going to think of Paul's lists of sins as an indictment against yourself, or will you continue to think about that list of sins as an indictment against the world? Healing is promised. But the people of God need to think about it personally and seriously first. It's just like those believers in Ephesus. It's like a letter from Paul. What are you going to do? How are you going to live? Are you going to take it seriously? Are you going to, are you going to do the things, the prayer, the confession, the walking that it takes? I hope that you do this week. There is an imprinting process going on. And too many people in the church are too far from Jesus Christ to have an effective sketch being done. It will not be this church.